Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who show for the month of December, where we're going to be basically talking through a hot take on the Christmas special. Hello, Dave. Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. We've got cricket starting later this morning. I'm very excited about that. Yep. Always love the Boxing Day test, especially when it's against the uh, the English. Yeah, your beloved MCG. Yep, the home of sport. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. You've, you've got to understand, Rob and listeners, when a Melbourneian says they live in the sporting capital of the world, it's not hyperbole. We genuinely do believe that. <laughs> very good. Very good. So normally we talk a bit of news at the start of our monthly episodes, Dave, but there hasn't been a hell of a lot this month. So why don't we just rip into the episode itself twice upon a time? It sounds good. I've got a lot of thoughts about this one, and I'm desperately trying to structure them in my mind as we as we, as we we talk. So this will be a very, very hot take, listeners. Yeah, look, I'm I'm much the same, folks. We've watched this on our um, iView player from the ABC. It hasn't even screened on Australian television at the time we're recording this. So this is a very hot take. So, Rob, we're doing these in the format of our Season 10 hot takes. Yes. Which includes a visit to the sports desk later on. Woohoo! But we always start with a word. Mm, we do. We used to call it Word of the Week because we're doing these weekly, but I guess we'll have to call this the Word of the Month, Word, the word of, of the Episode, Word of Christmas. Okay. What's your Word of Christmas, Rob? My Word of Christmas, Dave, is vapid. My Word of Christmas is there. Ooh, I think you're a bit more cryptic than me. So, Dave, let's start off with some general thoughts on the episode before we dig into some of the the things I think we probably need to talk about. Yes. What are your broad thoughts? Rob, I, I'm going to find this a very difficult episode to review because a good review is not just what you as an individual reviewer think about something, but it's about trying to match the right audience with the right content. Mm. I've learned over the last few years as a Doctor Who fan that there are some very different ways of watching Doctor Who, particularly the new series, and I think even more so the Moffat series. If you are the sort of fan that likes to really revel in the emotion and just sort of be carried through the episode on the feelings and the emotion and that sort of side of an episode, I think you'll get a lot out of Twice Upon a Time. If you're somebody who is more like me that is a bit more, I don't want to use the word old school, but what what the Flight Through Entirety guys would call a bit more of a Doctor Who monster book fan, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who enjoys the Doctor having an adventure, looks at the plot, likes the space corridors, I think that you will struggle with this episode. I didn't dislike this episode, but nor did I like it. Mm. And I was reflecting as I watched it, upon some of the reviews of The Last Jedi, which we, of course, reviewed ourselves last week. Yeah. There are some people out there who are taking a couple of moments of The Last Jedi that they clearly hated and writing off the whole movie because of that. It would be very easy for me to take a couple of moments in Twice Upon a Time that I really didn't like and write off the whole episode because of that. That would be unfair. Mm. So I'm not going to do that, and I don't think I should do that. It is a very mixed episode for me. And I'm going to really try and navigate through a couple of different thought streams as I try and explain that. Did that, any of that make any sense? And did any of that resonate with you, Rob? <laughs> Quite a lot of it resonated with me, Dave, uh, because like you, I, um, 
I'm not going to be giving this a super high score. Then again, I'm not going to be giving it a super low score. This won't be getting a 2 out of 10 or something from me. No, no. Uh, you know, there there is material in there that I liked. And in fact, later in this episode, I'm going to run us through how I would have done the episode using many, many of the things that actually happen in the episode, uh, but just cutting a few other things out and just twisting a few things here and there. And I think it could have been quite a cracking adventure. So... It's almost like, if we're going to talk about The Last Jedi, it's almost like The Last Jedi for me. If you gave me The Last Jedi and I could make some judicious edits to it, I'd probably like that movie a lot more than the 7.5 out of 10 I gave it. Similarly here, I I would do a few things here, maybe more than just a few edits, but there's enough there to really like, but I just, I just don't like it because it just does a few things that I'm mm, not so sure about. Yep, okay. I think we're both in a similar sort of area, which is going to be a very interesting conversation, I hope. Mm. Let's start with the First Doctor, Dave, because you are a First Doctor fan, a First Doctor aficionado. Uh, You had a lot of trepidation going to this episode. I know that the First Doctor might be misused or maybe miscast in a way that, you know, painted him in in a light that you don't think is true or genuine to the character. Now that you've seen the episode, how do you feel? Very, very mixed. I'm, I'm not angry, which is a good sign. I, I, I thought Bradley gave a perfectly capable and competent performance, perfectly decent performance. Do I think that he particularly captured William Hartnell? No, I didn't. In fact, there was a large part of it where I thought he was doing more of a William Shatner than a William Hartnell <laughs> as he broke up his sentences I throughout would. Quite the delivery. Agreed with that. <laughs> it was it was very odd delivery. Uh, he also had some very lovely moments. I thought the way they linked it in with the Tenth Planet was very wonderfully done and considerately done. I, I did like that. I also enjoyed some of the way that they used him to call out some of the things I don't like about modern Doctor Who, particularly when <laughs> the Capaldi Doctor's going on about, and it is protected, and he looks at this guy and just goes, what are you on about, you wanker? And I thought, <laughs> and I thought that's my feelings right there. That's, that's good. Uh, I do have a negative. Before I go into that particular rant, Rob, I might get your views. Dave, my view is the first Doctor didn't need to be there at all. Um, put, putting aside the stilted delivery and putting aside how I would have liked him to have played the, the role and so on. I think this was just... And I, I hate bashing Stephen Moffat because he's a talented guy. But I think this was another example of Stephen Moffat thinking, ah, I can write for the first Doctor too before I depart. You know, he's, he's always trying to go for these goals. Like, oh, I've written the Doctor that we never knew about, the John Hurt Doctor. I've done this, I've done that. And I think this was just another example of that. And when we get to how I would have done the episode, I wouldn't have had the first Doctor in here at all. I think it slowed down the story. It was totally unnecessary. And yeah, he wasn't playing it that well either. In fact, to modern audiences, I think it's sort of introducing the idea that the first Doctor isn't that likable. You know, all the the gags in quotation marks about how the women should be cleaning up the place and so on. Where was the giggling fun Hartnell that's, that's more like Yoda, you know? You know, oh, come with me, my boy. <laughs> you know, yeah. all that sort of st- Where was that Hartnell? That's the Hartnell I think of when I think of the first Doctor. But here he was more of, as you say, a William Shatner who just thought women should clean up. 
Let me get my Hartnell fan rant out of the way at this point, Robbins. Regular listeners will know he's my favourite Doctor and he's mm. my favourite era. Yeah. The first couple of those gags about you know him having a slightly different attitude to women, I thought, okay, that actually wasn't too bad. By the third and fourth and fifth iteration, I was really getting quite fed up with it. And, and, and I actually exclaimed a couple of uh, unrepeatable words when I got to sort of one of them. Mm. The reference to the jolly good smack bottom, I think it's really important to remember that he was, when he said that line, look, it's not a line you'd use now, but he was saying it to his granddaughter. And there is a bit of a difference between threatening to smack your granddaughter and threatening to smack a random stranger. Surely we can <laughs> concede there's a difference in those two things. I think so, yes. <laughs> but what disturbs me is that these lines were not given, as, as you pointed out, Rob, are not given in the full context of of the first Doctor and his era. And quite frankly, I think a lot of this was written by a guy who is on the record as saying he doesn't much like 60s Doctor Who. And I certainly don't think has gone and watched a lot of Hartnell Doctor Who in his portrayal of this and has simply written it based on the old-style fan lore of the first Doctor. Mm. To me, the first Doctor's era is a wonderful era of the show and one the show should be very, very proud of. In... 1960s science fiction we had some incredibly strong women characters we had barbara we had vicky we had polly we had susan even though she wasn't always the perfect character she had some very strong moments in as a, as a female and the hartnell doctor had utter respect for barbara he had as much respect for barbara as he did for ian and at the times he disrespected her he also disrespected him and he grew to love and respect them equally and there's, there's no doubt he did not have anything other than absolute love and admiration for Barbara. Well, there's often Barbara puts the Doctor in his place, and some people might think, oh, that's a really modern thing to do. The female companion puts the Doctor in his place. No, Barbara was doing it back in the 60s. Yep, that's exactly right. Vicky was allowed to have lead uh, moments in stories. You look at the Space Museum, and Vicky is the heroine of that story. She runs right through that plot and solves that plot. And again, the Doctor has great respect for her and her abilities. Uh, Sarah Kingdom. Polly, you know, there, there are great women characters in here. At the same time, the first Doctor's era is one about exploring and learning about other societies and other, other cultures. We go to Cafe, we go to the Aztecs, we go to France, we go to other worlds, and we are taught to love and respect the differences of cultures. When we're going to meet the Aztecs in the Hartnell era, it's not to go and attack them, it's not to go and belittle them, it's about learning to respect a different culture and that they have their strengths and their weaknesses as we have our strengths and our weaknesses. And indeed, that episode points out the flaws and the, the, the crimes of some aspects of European colonisation, particularly of the, the, the Middle Americas. It is an era that talks about tolerance. And I've talked before about a story like The Ark, which is all about travelling with understanding and treating other races equally. So... To, to take all of this wonderful stuff from an era and boil it down to a repeated bloody gag about cleaning the TARDIS, mm. I just thought, you've missed the whole bloody point of the Hartnell era. We could be saying, 54 years later, isn't it amazing that Doctor Who was so morally valued and had such wonderful liberal values 50 years ago and instead, we're making fun of it. And I, I really hope that a lot of fans who are discovering the first Doctor for the first time 
don't think that he was this doddery old misogynistic guy obsessed with cleaning. Mm. It would just really sadden me. Did I let that detract me from the whole episode? No. But I've got to say it, I really did have problems with it. It was minor. I know a lot of people will excuse it. Some people even think that it's wonderful, the Doctor Who's being so woke and everything. But if they think that, frankly, they've missed the point of the Hartnell era. Mm. Rant over. Hope that wasn't too long. (laughs) No, no, it's good. It saves me saying a lot of it. I'm probably not as into the Hartnell Doctor as you are, but he is one of my more favourite Doctors. So I, I feel a lot of what you're saying. I really, really do. And... It just keeps coming back to me, why why was he even there in the first place? But I'll get to that later. Talking of the Hartnell Doctor, his companions were there very, 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 I'll say another one, very briefly. They didn't look quite right. They certainly didn't sound right. I mean, could Ben have tried a little harder to just do the voice, given he only had like one or two lines? It's not hard, you know. Even I can have a go at that sort of accent, Governor, you know, sort of thing. It's, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And where did they fit in at the end? <laughs> You know, did he go back and get them? What happened? It seemed he just went to the TARDIS and regenerated, but they're meant to be there. What's going on? Uh, yeah, I don't know whether that was just a cut for time thing, that there was a moment of him reuniting with Ben and Polly and going back to the TARDIS. Because, yeah, to the viewer who hasn't seen the 10th planet, they would be wondering, did he just leave Ben and Polly at the South Pole? What's with that? Uh, I agree. I thought Polly looked pretty good. Uh, ben just didn't look good. I don't know what it was. I think it was something about the hair or the height or something. But yeah, but whatever. You know, it was it was as you say. You know, six seconds, if that. Mm. Um, and and points to them for recreating the Cyberman spaceship set. I thought that did look quite good. Yeah, as briefly as we saw it. <laughs> Speaking of briefly seeing, I do have to pay tribute though to seeing the original TARDIS console. I love it every time that turns up. So thank you, Stephen Moffat, for giving me back the original TARDIS console. It really is a wonderful design, isn't it? Oh, like the last time we saw it, it's like, why can't this be the TARDIS all the time? Why don't we just go back to this? This is great. Yeah, it is pretty amazing, that thing. One of the things that the new series has done consistently wrong is the TARDIS console room. And they've just made it bigger and grander and more convoluted. And and there's there's an elegance to simplicity. Mm, I, I completely agree. Now, the concept of this episode, that these glass people are getting around and, you know, store people's memories, and it's like, you know, people have never left us because they're they're stored like this, because these glass people go back in time and, you know, what, sort of download all these memories at the point of death. I, I thought that was quite interesting. But you know what? It's not explored well at all, because we're too busy with the two doctors, you know, getting around bickering and doing one-liners at each other. I thought what underpinned the episode really needed to be fleshed out more because I was quite interested in it. I, I totally agree. And this gets back to my original opening comment. If you're the sort of person that just wants to ride the emotional beats from point to point, I think there are a lot of really good emotional beats that will get you through this episode and you'll end up going, what a wonderful, lovely experience, 10 out of 10. If you're more of a fan like us who goes, right, what's the plot? What's the story that they're trying to tell? I kind of looked at this and said, well, yeah, what was the story they were trying to tell? This concept was there, as you say, a wonderful concept. And not a lot was done with it. I think it was really just sort of there as a device or mechanism to put the two Doctors together so they could then, well, not resolve a plot because there wasn't really a plot to resolve. The Doctor just found out that it wasn't a bad thing and went, oh, that's that then. 
Yeah, which was a funny line in 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 and of itself. It's it's not one that made me cringe. I was actually quite amused by it. Oh no, that was a really good point. But even if it's going to be benevolent, Rob, mm. and this maybe gets to what you were thinking when you're talking about you know how you'll do the episode differently. It could still have had some sort of problem, like you know the doctor's meeting caused a problem in this machine, and if the doctor didn't fix it, then you know World War One ends differently or something you know just just give him something to actually fix so there is a aspect of the plot where the doctor has to do something yes instead it's a it's a bit throwaway and i think there was so much more to dig into in a similar way we get rusty the dalek back i mean the idea that the daleks have a better database than the time lords come on that's that's a bit of a stretch i think that was just invented so we could go back and and see rusty again and it's not like rusty was that great a character to begin with and yet he gets shoehorned into capaldi's finale as well so two points on that on the first one i think it you're absolutely right but it could have been solved with a line and and it could have been a really good moment because if the hartnell doctor had said i can't go back to gallifrey and Capaldi just giving him a knowing look and gone, no, of course you can't. I'd forgotten. Then they could have gone, well, what's the next best thing? I know the Dalek database. Chance lost, I think. Mm. Uh, as for Rusty the Dalek, I didn't know who it was until he told me. Remember when I was inside and I've gone, oh, did that Dalek have a name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he's the one who went crazy at the end of an episode and started blowing away lots of Daleks and it was quite an action scene. Which, you know, which, which is fine, but if I'm fan enough and dedicated enough to this series that I'm recording a podcast at 8 o'clock in the morning and I couldn't remember who he was and needed reminding, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that went down for the casual viewer. Yeah, again, it's just shoehorning stuff in that doesn't need to be there. Like I've said, I don't think the first Doctor needed to be there. I don't think Rusty the Dalek needed to be there. I did like that planet, though, that they went to, you know, with all the uh, the Dalek mutants scuttling about. Yeah, that was cool. Give me more of that. Yeah. Let me actually see a Dalek mutant. You know, that, that, that could have been a whole act. That would have been lovely. So, so many things that I would have emphasized more and de-emphasized in this episode. I think I think that's really where I'm starting to solidify my views lots of good things but the stuff i liked there wasn't enough of and the stuff i did like there was too much of yeah i mean just little things like when on that planet and capaldi goes upstairs to talk to rusty leaves um the first doctor downstairs and the first doctor's just walking around i'm thinking this is really cool this is the first doctor in color walking around and then he finds a dalek gun in the bushes and I thought, oh, this is really great. You know, just little moments like that I was really enjoying. You know, it's not like I was hating the whole thing. You know, even just little moments I'd pull out like that and really quite enjoy. And it was very well done. And this is New Who at its best in that a casual audience member or a newish audience member would just be looking at this strange creature going, oh, what's that? That looks exciting. But an old Doctor Who fan who is invested in the series, and, and now we can say even an old Doctor Who fan, as in someone who started in 2005, yeah. you know, nearly 13 years ago, they could look at that and go, ooh, that looked like a Dalek mutant. I wonder if that's a Dalek mutant. And get that little free song of excitement. So it worked on both levels. That was a really good moment. Oh, look, I, I completely agree. I guess we have to talk World War One and Mark Gaddis. Yes. I've, I've done a lot of talking so far, Rob, so I'll let you take the lead on this one because I know you're a history buff. I am a history buff, and believe it or not, 
this past week on Facebook, I was reminded, you know how Facebook reminds you of things you said five, ten years ago, and, and sometimes you're quite embarrassed, but sometimes you're quite heartened to see something you wrote a long time ago and it comes back and you and you re... I was going to say retweet it, that's not the right term. You re-Facebook it to people. And one popped up this week for me and it was talking about the Christmas truce in World War One, And I was talking about how this wonderful moment happened when, you know, the two sides got out of the trenches, swapped food, swapped cigarettes, uh, chatted where they could because some people could speak English and some could speak German and otherwise they'd use hand sign language and so on to each other and... <laughs> And, you know, maybe a bit of uh, football was played as well. And it's this wonderful, beautiful moment. You have these two sides looking at each other thinking, we're, we're not really that different. Why are we fighting? And yet here we are. And if you'd told them, I think I wrote this, if you'd told them then that they'd be there for another four years in that meat grinder, I think they all would have just packed up and gone home. So it's this really wonderful moment in World War One for me. Mm. And for Moffat to pick that out and think, ah, there's the Christmas theme, because that happened at Christmas, I thought, eh, that's really clever. I like that. As for Gaddis himself, I had a lot of, I had a lot of trepidation about that going into this episode, because I was thinking about his acting ability, and I was thinking about what they might make him become in the episode. I was thinking, oh God, they're going to make him a Lethbridge Stewart, aren't they? They're going to make him a Lethbridge Stewart. And of course, that came true. I think everyone had pretty much guessed that that would happen. Even though, I remember around the time the first trailer dropped, people were saying, oh, he's going to be a Lethbridge Stewart. And someone, I think, involved with the Lethbridge Stewart books, or at least a big fan of those books, was saying, no, no, the time, the timeline would be all wrong for that to happen. And they had some theory as to why that couldn't be. But, eh, it is what it is. Uh, Moffat has made his friend Mark um, <laughs> a Lethbridge Stewart, as I guess a farewell gift to uh to him now that he probably won't work on the show anymore he will be forever now a lethbridge stewart in doctor who history and law i don't know how i feel about that but i will say i was really surprised by gaddis's acting particularly the moment the quiet moment when he's in the tardis talking to what he thinks is bill but is really one of these um glass creatures and he's just talking about the war his family he's got boys and so on i thought this is possibly some of the best acting in the episode and I'm really surprised to be saying that. There's a lot there that I need to respond to. Okay. Uh, look, I totally agree with you about the Christmas truce stuff. I think that is a bizarre, incredible, special moment in history. And for Moffat to use that as a little bit of Christmas in this. And can I just say as an aside, I'm really happy that it only was a little bit of Christmas. Mm. And he didn't just make it about Christmas because he felt he had to. That was a really good move. And long overdue for these Christmas specials, let me say. Agreed. For him to have chosen that, I thought was a really wonderful moment. And they did take a bit of time there. I thought they did do it very, very well. It was very well filmed. Uh, Rachel Talalay, who directed this, does do those sort of scenes really, really well. The one where you can use the camera, camera angles, uh, a slight slowing down of time, I think, at points, a little bit of out of focus, and just, just moving the camera in a way that tells the story without needing dialogue. She's very talented at doing that, and they were wonderful, wonderful scenes. Uh, Gaddis being a Lethbridge steward, I assume he's meant to be the Brigadier's grandfather? I would think so, yeah. If, if his boys are, say, say they're four or five, you know, they might have been born in 1910, they would be having kids around the 30s, perhaps, and then someone born then in the be... 30s would be the right age in the 60s. 
late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, that, that that's yeah. kind of where I thought it. It's not a perfect match, but yeah, I thought that was fine. Um, I'm I'm pretty indifferent to him being a Lethbridge steward. It doesn't change the character. It's it's a nice little callback, I guess. I I wasn't either excited by it, uh, nor was I stressed about it. It was just it was just a it was just there. It was nice. Gannis's performance, I thought, was one of the most varied things in the episode. Mm. As you said, his stuff inside the TARDIS, that was really quite wonderful. That was Gaddis at his best. There's also some moments where I think Mark forgot that he was actually in a television studio and just thought he was a fan wandering around the set, you know, talking to two doctors. And um, you just get this sort of wonderfully, wonderfully delightfully camp uh, light performance. And I just thought... I thought, what's what's he doing here? Like, he's just sort of almost giggling. Oh my god, I'm on a Doctor Who set. Yeah. And then, yeah, as I say, there are other moments where he gave great lines. It's a it's a really interesting and varied performance. There were highs and there were lows. Companions, aside from Ben and Polly, uh, we we get a fair bit of Bill in this episode, but it's not really Bill because it's Bill's memories in one of these glass people. But I quite enjoyed seeing it back. Didn't quite have the emotional kick I thought it might have of having Bill back it was just like oh yeah Bill's back well it's not going to if it's not Bill yeah true uh, and I, I have I have mixed thoughts on this again as well there's part of me that really liked the way that the Doctor and Bill parted at the end of uh, the last series not knowing that the other's still alive and I really quite like that that the Doctor doesn't know that Bill survived in, in a manner of speaking and she doesn't know the doctor would have gone on to regenerate mm. and i guess they still don't well sorry bill still doesn't know that but the doctor now presumably can assume that that story about heather was true so therefore she has gone off yeah but it's all mixed in with the doctor being suspicious of her which is very realistic but it's not the emotional reunion that we might have expected because he's suspicious and then it wasn't the emotional farewell because it wasn't her. Mm. So I kind of felt a bit almost cheated. Yeah, and, and I think that's helping me because, folks, this is a hot take. That's helping me sort of understand why I didn't feel any sort of emotional heft that Bill was back and, and all of that because, yeah, it wasn't her and he wasn't into the idea of what she was. You know, oh, you're just, you're just some memories. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not really you. You know, no matter how much you'd argue, but that is what I am, you know, a collection of memories. Yeah, I, I just didn't feel the heft there. And, and this is another example of why it's so hard to really land and assess this episode. Pearl Mackey herself, great performance. Mm, wonderful yeah. performance. And, and the way that she was able to convey that real shock at the idea that the Doctor doesn't trust her. You know, great acting. But... At the same time, it wasn't Bill, so it doesn't have the emotional resonance. You see, th- th- this episode's full of highs and lows that are kind of almost counteracting each other and balancing each other out. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, look, let's move on to Nardole. He briefly pops in at the end, so we think, oh, okay, so Nardole's dead <laughs> off in, you know, where we left him. We knew that was going to happen. Um, he gets to do a one-liner, you know, cuddle. You know, memories of shuttlecraft. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, I still remember that. Yeah. 
uh, and then he's gone, you know, so we get we get a little callback to Nardole. It was nice to see him because, as I kept saying about that previous episode, even though Bill had all these magical powers, she didn't go and save Nardole. Yeah, it would have been nice if he turned around to her and gone, where, you know, where were you? But that, that might have been too much of a link back and maybe I'm being cynical there. Uh, I think that if you're somebody who liked Nardole's character, this would have been a wonderful moment for you because it really was the best of Nardle's character, so to speak, or, 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 or shall I say the personification of Nardle's character. If, like me, you thought he was better than expected and okay, but kind of didn't like the forced humour, I think that you would have sat there and gone, oh my God, it's another Nardle forced joke. Whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good full stop for him and appropriate in the episode. And rounding out the companions for this episode... We knew she'd come back, Clara. I'd almost managed to forget it, Rob. <laughs> and you know what? It Again, it didn't have the emotion or the heft of, say, Amy Pond coming back, you know, to, to spoil Clara's moment uh, a doctor ago. This was very... It was almost like they just got her in for 10 minutes and just filmed, like, something direct to camera. Maybe that's what they had done. It was a bit weird. Yeah, I could certainly believe that she was not in the same room as Peter Capaldi. Yeah, I, I completely agree. She came back, delivered a few lines, lets everyone know that... Well, we know that the Doctor now remembers her great. Um, and that was it. It, it. There just wasn't much to it. Look, as you know, I was very pleased to see the back of Clara. I didn't want to see her back. I don't know why it had to happen. There was a lot of fan pushback when, as you say, Amy came back to spoil Clara's farewell to the Matt Smith Doctor. So why do it again? Why have Clara have to come back to just, you know, bump Bill aside and take over her farewell? It was crass. It was over the top. It was unneeded. It annoyed me. It was just Clara back. I I agree. Now, earlier in the episode, Dave, I was suggesting I would have done things a little differently, but still used a lot of the, um, you know, the, the, the building blocks of this episode. Would you like to hear my take on this episode? Please. Okay, what I would have done, I would have had the Doctor leave that Cyberman spaceship and arrive in World War One, wonderful War Games-like moment, and he would have actually disrupted that moment between the two soldiers. They're having their Mexican standoff, and the Doctor stumbles in, you know, a bit groggy maybe, and they both turn to look at him, and, and suddenly they're not going to shoot each other. They're looking at this third dude. Then time freezes, and Gaddis and the Doctor are kidnapped. They're kidnapped into a place they, they, they don't know where they are, but they escape. They have no idea what's going on. And a sort of a mystery ensues, and Gaddis is the companion. And along the way, while they're in this place trying to figure out what exactly has happened, they are tempted by Bill and Nardole and Clara, who are just their memories coming back. It's almost like, I don't know, Jamie and Zoe and the Five Doctors or something like that. They're the companions, but not the companions. And then the Doctor figures out what's going on and realises that he doesn't want to be a collection of memories because that's why he and this other dude have been taken there, you know, because they're at the end of their life, they're going to be harvested for their memories. And he thinks, well, that's not real, I don't like that, so he's going to want to keep on living. Um, you know, and that's something he explored a lot in the episode, that he didn't think this stuff was real and that he didn't want to regenerate. This is how he would come to want to regenerate. The captain gets placed back in World War One. We have that moment of the Christmas truce, which essentially saves him from actually dying. 
the Doctor goes into the TARDIS, does his speech and regenerates. And that, to me, would have been a really interesting and cracking adventure. Still using most of the building blocks of what we had, largely just cutting out the first Doctor and the whole, you know, deviation off to the, the South Pole. I, I like that idea. I think it would have worked well. I think it would have been a slightly more substantial adventure. Mm. It wouldn't have sold for me, though, the one big negative I have with the whole thing, which is it didn't feel to me like a climactic regeneration story for Peter Capaldi. No, because he'd already had that. <laughs> and this is this is the concern that we raised both at the end of our review of Series 10 and also in our Regenerations episode last month. Capaldi had done his regeneration story. He had his regeneration moment. And we, we I think we now know that it's only because Moffat was required to come back and write this Christmas special or it wouldn't have happened that he's had to tag this on and that this this wasn't his real ending for Capaldi. And look, is it good to have a Christmas special? I guess so. I I probably wouldn't have missed it if it wasn't there, frankly. Um, and that, that says as much about the relationship that Australia has with Christmas specials mm. more than anything else. They're just not a thing here so much. And do you know what trick the episode missed here? In in an age where it is all about de feels and all of that, do you know what it missed doing, Dave? Mm-hmm. Capaldi is about to regenerate. He's he's had his his little witty, you know, never be cruel or cowardly, and he's gone through his, all this. His Facebook and, post and, and and don't <laughs> eat pears and all of this stuff. He's done his you know sunscreen song. Um, you know what should have happened? The TARDIS has a um, it just rolls back. The whole roof of the TARDIS rolls back to see the galaxy and stars. The Doctor looks up and says, "Ah, stars." That would have been wonderful. It would be a huge moment. A real kick in De Feels, and it didn't do it. It was begging to be done. Come on. That You're absolutely right. That would have been superb. I'm, I'm going to pretend that happened now. Mm. You, can just, you can just picture it. You can just picture a close-up mm. on him. He's looking up. The starlight's reflecting in his eyes, and he just says that one word, stars, and it's a tie-back because fans know it's a tie-back, and it's just wonderful and beautiful, and everyone cries. And instead, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's he's... His speech isn't as good as Smithy's farewell speech. Oh, oh, now he's regenerated. Okay. Oh, there's Jody. Yeah, interesting. I, I thought the speech was terrible. I thought it was a bad Facebook post. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've got to agree with you there. It um like I say, it wasn't as good as Smithy's. It wasn't mm. it wasn't much at all. And and for a man who has done some really great little, you know, soliloquies in Doctor Who, mm, bit of a letdown. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, I, again, it comes from the fact that this was a very artificial episode. Yeah. It it didn't naturally reach a conclusion. It was there because it had to be there. And I think that's a real shame. And look, given that I very rarely, if ever, go back to watch Christmas specials, but I will definitely go back and watch most, if not all, of season 10 you know, many times over the coming years, I think for me, uh, World Enough and Time and The Doctor Falls will be the real finale for Capaldi. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely agreed. Now, before we get to the sports desk, I guess the elephant in the room we have to discuss is what we saw of Jodie. Ah, uh, she did good for the four seconds she was on screen. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny. I had a very quick look at the Twitter reaction after I'd watched this episode before I did this recording. Oh, I've not even done that. And again, some of the people who are just... Uh, look, clearly they're very happy and I'm very happy for them. But I think there's a few people overselling this moment. It was the greatest regeneration ever. And she sold me on the Doctor with two words. And I've already got her character. And it's like, really? Mm. I'm, I'm great you feel that way. But look, 
I thought the regeneration was very well done. I thought her reactions were really quite good. I thought, okay, yeah, that, that she's the Doctor now. I totally bought it. Full credit to her. Uh, but I'm not judging her entire character on this any more than I judged David Tennant's on Barcelona or, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, you know, it was good, but come on, guys. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway was, okay, there's Jodie. She's looking at herself. She says a line, a word or two. Uh, she's using her real accent, okay. Then she fell out of the TARDIS, and I was thinking, fanboy that I am, doesn't the TARDIS have a little force field around it to stop you falling out? <laughs> What's happening there? Yes. <laughs> oh, but I guess the regeneration did something to the console, Dave, I'm sure, uh, which turned off that feature. <laughs> this is again, and it comes back to the same thing about um, the changeover from Tennant to Smith. Why the hell would Time Lord Regenerations damage the TARDIS? Like, that's the most <laughs> stupid thing for them to do. Um, I didn't get it, and particularly as it hadn't happened for multiple ones before. I, I don't understand that. Like, it's just, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Smithy to Capaldi, he just sort of flicked his head and regenerated in half a second. Uh, Tenet, of course, exploded and blew everything up, but I think they just wanted to get rid of that set. Well, Tenet did everything over the top. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, and now we have Jodie falling towards Earth. How will she be saved? I don't know. It was an interesting sort of end, but... Uh, hmm. Does it mean that she's going to be separated from the TARDIS for part or all of the next series? And could that mean she's in the one spot, which is why it's a continuation of the story from episode to episode? I'm not going to reach that conclusion because I'm I'm trying to be someone who doesn't reach conclusions based on four seconds of footage. But that ending does fit some of the rumours we have about the next series. I'll simply say that. It has separated her from the TARDIS. The TARDIS was in on fire on the interior. And we do know that in the Jodie era, the TARDIS looks different. It looks more like the Pertwee TARDIS. Uh, so, yeah, we'll just wait and see. We will wait and see a very long time. <laughs> Indeed. But until then, I think we've got a sports desk to go to. Let's go. <laughs> Budget cuts, Dave. I can't play the real theme. <laughs> Kidding. Okay, so here we are at the Sports Desk, where if you've heard our Series 10 episodes, we talk MVP, Foul of the Week, and Play of the Week, or I guess as we'd call it, Foul of Christmas and Play of Christmas, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> MVP. This is a tricky one. I might go first, because I'll, I'll just throw okay. it out there. I've, I've already given a hint towards this. <sighs> I'm as surprised as anyone, Dave. I'm going to say the MVP was Mark Gaddis. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because we had the Doctor just going through the motions as the Doctor. We had Bill just going through the motions as Bill. We know those characters, they were doing their usual thing. Gaddis got in there and was kind of the, um, I don't know if it, if it was a meat pie, he was the sauce on top. He just added that little bit of flavour and you weren't quite sure what he would be doing. Uh, again, the first Doctor was being first Doctory in some ways and not in others. But Gaddis, hmm... He, he just provided something a bit different in there 
And when he had those quieter moments, I thought he had some of the best acting in the episode. Look, again, I'm as surprised as anyone to be saying this because I don't rate a lot of his writing. I don't always rate a lot of his acting in different things. But yeah, he was like an X factor for me in this. Everyone else was doing what we expect them to do. Whereas he just, there was something about it and it is fun to be contrary sometimes. So I'm giving it to Gaddis. Okay, I can respect that contrarian opinion. I can't agree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I agree that he had some highs, but I also thought he also had some lows, so I can't do it. I'm giving my MVP to Rachel Tatterley. Good call. I didn't think any of the performances here were particularly wonderful. Gaddis, as I said, had highs and lows. Bradley was competent, but he was more Shatner-esque than Hartnell-esque. Bill was, was fine. You know, Pearl Mackey was fine. She's always good. Capaldi was was very good, and it was that great middle-of-the-road Capaldi. But I've got to say, I didn't buy this as being his final story. You look at Pertwee in Spiders. Mm -hmm. You look at Tom in Legopolis. You look at Davo in Andrazani. You look at Eccleston in Parting of the Ways. There is a passion there. There is. There is something there, and I thought that was lacking from Capaldi, I think because he did play his grand final the week before, to use an Australian expression. Yeah. Oh, look, I completely agree with that. And again, this does tie back to me picking Gaddis because a lot of these people were just going through the motions and being what we expect them to be, whereas Gaddis stood out for me for that reason. Sorry to keep going back to my one, but uh, they sort of marry together these two ideas because you were seeing the same thing as me, that these characters weren't doing anything out of the ordinary or spectacular. Exactly. They were good, solid players, but they weren't outstanding, whereas Rachel Tatterley gave a really good directorial performance. I've already highlighted the stuff in World War II, particularly the Christmas truce. The way that she filmed the planet where the Dalek mutants were, really well done. Um, Lovely use of jump cuts, lovely use of pans, lovely use of lighting or lack of lighting. Lighting Um, was great. Yeah, all of these sort of things to make a really nice little textural piece I thought was really, really good. It's very rare in modern Doctor Who that I do notice a director because there is such a house style to the way that it's all produced these days. Yeah. But I do notice Rachel Talalay's work. I definitely did here. And I think she definitely deserves to be our most valued player for this episode. Excellent. Excellent choice. Foul of the week. Do you want to go first on this one, Dave? Look, no surprise. I'm giving it to the attempt to make the first Doctor look like a sexist, misogynistic, boorish old hag with some sort of obsession with cleanliness. I just thought, (laughs) you know, once or twice, as I said, I could have forgiven. But as a running gag it got tedious it was offensive and i think it undercut so much to celebrate about the first doctor i've had my rant that rant at the early in this episode is why i give that my foul of the week you know they could have made it worse with some chewing on pineapple <laughs> <laughs> so thank heaven for small mercies look my foul of the week uh there are two the minor one being the shoehorning of the lethbridge stewarts that's that's just fan wank let's just call it for what it is it's fan wank didn't need to be there just tying more things together it's very star wars oh this person's related to this person oh i've bumped into one soldier out of you know hundreds of thousands of course he's a lethbridge steward look it is fan wank but i thought it was harmless fan wank because it didn't actually affect the plot and it wasn't done in an ovary set it wasn't done in an overly saccharine moment. I was fine with it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Yeah. As I say, though, that was a minor example. For me, 
I concur with you. It was the way the first Doctor was used. It just didn't gel with me. There are a few moments I liked. Like I say, when he was creeping around in the dark, found the Dalek gun. Just some moments, probably where he wasn't with Capaldi. And I was just imagining, this is like a first Doctor adventure in colour. This is really cool. Uh, But those moments were few and far between. On the whole, not well done. I agree with your rant 100%. Excellent. So, shall I go first for our play of Christmas? I think so, Dave. Look, it's a personal one for me, but I'm going to go with the way that the Hartnell to Trout and Regeneration was shown on screen. I did get a bit emotional seeing that again, and particularly at the idea that millions of new viewers and fans will now get to experience that wonderful moment. It was done, I think, very, very tastefully. There was a moment there where I thought... No, they're going to they're going to retcon this and have him do that stupid exploding regeneration thing, mm. which just would have been so wrong. And they didn't. They they reduced the screen back, you know, to the old six two five lines or whatever it was, and they just showed it and they just let it be there. And you know, I got to see my favorite Doctor regenerate again, yeah. and I actually got to see it in the context of an actual episode, not just a loose clip. Yeah, and that was really special for me. It was a lovely moment. I wish they'd shown that much respect to everything else about the Hartnell Doctor in this, but that is definitely my play of Christmas. Okay, my play of Christmas is something I've already discussed, so I'll be very brief. It was tying the Christmas truce in, basically finding a Christmas link there. It's a moment in history I feel deeply about. Um, I've already covered it, so I'll just leave it at that. I just thought that was a really nice thing. I agree. Yeah, nice call. Nice call. Okay, Dave, now before we wrap up the episode, I guess we've got two things to do, and that is uh, our scores and also explain our word of the week. Sure. So you went with vapid, Rob. I did. I think you've explained what that meant. I did go with vapid, Dave. Um, The dictionary would tell you that vapid is offering nothing that is stimulating or challenging. It's bland. Um, And maybe that's a little harsh, but that's more along the lines of how I feel about this episode than not. Yeah, I I think it is a little harsh, but I totally understand where you're coming from. And I had very similar feelings. I went with the word there, because if I had to explain my feelings about this episode to someone, I would say, you know what? It was just kind of there. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one, actually. There are are some lovely moments in this. Don't get me wrong, listeners. I'm not saying this was awful. But when I look back on this, there really isn't a lot of substance. And the plot particularly, I think, was negligible and it's not going to be an episode I come back to looking for it it was just kind of there like I say jettison the first doctor explore these uh, glass creatures more there was there was a good adventure at hand it just didn't happen there, there was a universe shattering adventure that could come from the idea of people harvesting souls yes <laughs> and it was thrown and away yeah, that was thrown away. That, that's probably my biggest real irking of the thing that I... Look, as I say, I'm the sort of fan that's driven by plot and space adventure and adventures in time. So I, I need that to justify emotional beats. Without that, the emotional beats for me are just vapid, yeah. to use your word. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's Stephen, you've come up with this amazing idea and yet you're, all you're writing is the two doctors squabbling and, you know, talking about sunglasses and cleaning and nonsense like this. The, the, the real story's over there, Stephen. <laughs> go, go, go and write that. Yeah, but again, I totally understand why there will be fans who will give this an 8, a 9, a 10 because of the emotional beats. If they hit you in the heart, then you will love this episode. And if you're the sort of person that has found the Moffat era 
has consistently grabbed you and the emotional beats have been powerful for you and that's what you've loved i think you will love this episode if you're something if you're somebody who despises the moffat era because of that and because of the problems with his plotting and characters you will struggle with this episode so i come back to my original comments depending on what you like in doctor who will very heavily influence i think how you like twice upon a time I agree with you broadly, but let me say this. I can be sucked into those moments. If I'm watching Smithy's Regeneration, you know, even the appearance of Amy, a character I don't even like, can have me sort of, oh gosh, this is very emotional. Then that bow tie hits the floor and I think, Christ, you know, and and I could be in tears at that point. I can be affected by this kind of Doctor Who, Moffat Doctor Who, DeFeels, all of that stuff. But this one, this one didn't get me that way. Fair enough. So what was your score, Rob? My score out of 10, Dave, like I said at the start, I'm not slating this. I'm not giving it 2 out of 10 or something. I think I'm being very fair and true to myself with this score. I'm going to give it 6.5 out of 10. Snap. <laughs> I, I agree with you. There are moments there that were 8 pushing 9. There were moments there that you know I really was quite annoyed with, and there were 2s and 3s. There were good bits. There were bad bits. There was potential that was used. There was potential that was ignored. So I think a good average score of a six is fair. But again, I will understand why some people give this a nine. I'll understand why some people give this a three. I think this is going to be an episode that really does diverge fan opinion for the reasons I've outlined. Well, we often say we're the sensible Santa Dave, uh, and I think we've proven it again. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. But we've got more to talk about for the next little while. We do, we do. So let's rattle through a few things here. The first is, if you've heard our Star Wars episode on The Last Jedi, and if you haven't, what are you doing? Go and listen to it. Um, We had an email from your mate Richard, Dave. Yes. And Richard started talking about Doctor Who in that, so we just left it to the Star Wars chat for that episode, and we've held over the Doctor Who chat for now. So I'll briefly go to that A question for Rob. Have you had a look at the new Gale Force 9 game? Hoping my copy will turn up soon. It's had some reasonable reviews, although I think the fact there's only four playable Doctors in the box is a downer, as it appears the mechanics include game effects for all 12. The other Doctors will be released as expansions, two figures and a character sheet per box, it seems. They've only shown Doctors 1, 4, 5, 10... 11 and 12 at the moment. Doctors 1, 4, 11 and 12 are in the base game. Doctors 5 and 10 are the expansion. I notice Warlord Games appear to have licensed these six existing models for the Exterminate game. Sculpts for the figures look quite nice from the images I've seen, better than the Warlord models, although I wish people would stop using that image of Hartnell with the monocle as a reference. Okay, quickly... um, Richard, I've not got the new Gale Force 9 game or Exterminate. Um, I haven't been playing a lot of board games in general, but I am very interested in this. I'm, I'm wondering what kind of market there is for a Doctor Who game like this, because the hobby of, you know, tabletop gaming is fairly niche to begin with, and Doctor Who is, is, a, is a smaller niche of that niche. So um, I'm curious to see where it goes. I may pick it up in the future, but um, I liked reading your email because it does remind our listeners that this game is out there if they want to try a, uh, a tabletop game using uh, miniatures and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, yes, not really my scene, but I know there are a lot of fans that really do love the little models and the little gaming aspects of Doctor Who fandom, and yeah, interesting to hear some thoughts there. I do agree with Richard, though, 
that I'm sick of that photo of Hartner with the monocle, which just looks nothing like him. Mm. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and funnily enough, a scene they recreated in the Christmas special. <laughs> true. True. <laughs> now, Rob, since we last spoke on the Doctor Who show, we had the screenings of Sharda in the cinemas. And in our last episode, we were a little bit cynical about why that was happening and how it would do. And did you notice when you pulled up twice upon a time on iView this morning, Dave, that Sharda is up there? Uh, I didn't. It was 7.30 in the morning and I was still a little bit unfocused. <laughs> yeah, well, it looks like the animated Sharda is up on ABC iView. So I'm going to check that out later today. I'm probably going to buy the disc because I'm a completist. But uh, anyway, I digress. I think you've got something to say about the cinema screenings. Uh, yes. Yeah, so as you know, Rob, I'm, I'm a bit of a cinema buff and I like to go to a lot of movies and I look at the numbers and how they all do and everything. And I've got the numbers here for the Charter screening as compared to a couple of other Doctor Who screenings. Now, none of them are large. Um, and, you know, you know, look, look, an okay cinema opening for a sort of a niche film, something like The Disaster Artist, in Australia will get an opening weekend of about 80,000. A bigger film will get two to 300,000 and your blockbusters start to crack a million. Mm. Um Star Wars, the last year I got 20 million, but that's just an extraordinary figure. Yeah. But that perhaps gives our listeners some sort of sense of the scale. S- super extraordinary, given we're a country of, what, 23 million people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, context. When they did the screening of the pilot in cinemas in Australia, that made 81,000, which is actually a pretty good figure for something that niche. The power of the Dalek screenings got... 98,000, which is an even better figure. And we were quite cynical about it, but that's actually not a bad weekend figure for something so niche. So 81,000, 98,000. Sharda got 29,000. Wow. Uh, It was only shown on 41 screens compared to 96 for the pilot and 103 for Power of the Daleks. So even then, though, it wasn't a big figure. Uh, That is actually, I think, quite a poor figure. And as I say, comparing it to those other two, it's a drop of almost two-thirds. And that works out to be an average of about 700 people per uh, theatre, obviously across multiple screenings. Yes, which probably is about right. 41 screens would be a handful in each capital city. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, so look, people did go to see it, but it was, as I say, nearly a, a two-thirds drop off the others. Yeah, and if you didn't see it, well, A, you're too late, but B, it's on ABC iView. Uh, it is, it is. If you're um, Australian. My, well, that, yeah, that's true. I, I will dip in. I don't think I'm going to watch all six episodes, but I might just, you know, watch episode three or episode five or something. And yeah, have a look. good one. All right, moving on. We've just had Christmas, of course, and I'll mention that I've got the 2018 Doctor Who annual and also something a bit different, the audio annual. The 2018 annual will be no uh, surprise to people. The annuals have gone downhill in quality year after year. I just buy them because I'm a completist. It has, uh, you know, some cartoons, some quizzes, stuff like that. Lots of photos, lots of stock photos. It's not a very interesting thing. The audio annual, meanwhile, oh, my God, Dave, this is wonderful. It is stories from past annuals going back decades being read by, you know, past companions and all that sort of thing. So the stories themselves aren't fantastic. You know, the stories and annuals were always quite a bit cheesy. But hearing them read is just delightful. So to anyone who liked the early annuals, there is a uh, CD out there made by the BBC where uh, past companions read stories from those annuals. Good fun. Okay, I hadn't even heard of that. So... 
that actually is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. If, if you might even remember some of the stories from these old annuals and to hear them read out, you know, to hear Nicola Bryant read one, for example, it's just great. Okay, I'm yeah, I'm actually interested in that one. Good one. Check it out. Now, Rob, as you know, I've recently been trying to make a point of every month at least watching one story I haven't seen for a long time or yes. don't regard well and seeing if my opinion has improved over time. Mm-hmm. And last month I have watched Ghostlight, not because any individual challenged me to, but because a number of podcasts have spoken very, very well of it recently. And I thought, I want to try and see it the way they see it. Frankly, I failed in that endeavor. Ooh. I, I watched Ghostlight again, really wanting to like it. I watched part one, and at the end of that, I thought, this is actually kind of cool. It's very kooky. It's very weird. It's very wonderful. The characters are interesting. I don't know what's going on. The, the, the setting's good. The costume's good. It looks good. McCoy's, you know, at his best, so to speak. But I'm sorry, it, it does all fall apart in parts two and three. I know that the explanations are there. I know that if you read the book, you can get them. I understand what they are, but they're not on screen. There's some weird stuff that happens for no apparent reason. There's, there is too much in it. I think some of the performances do get a bit weird. Light is not a good villain, and I don't think he does much. I don't like the way he's performed. At the end of it, I just was left again feeling it was a mess. I, I could see what others were looking at. I can see what they're getting, but... No, I'm sorry, Ghostlight still doesn't work for me. And, uh, you know, I say this as somebody who has come to love a lot of the McCoy era. I enjoy Battlefield. I enjoy Fenric. I love Survival, Remembrance, mm. Happiness Patrol is a favourite. Greatest Show in the Galaxy, though, is another one where I I really want to like it. I can see what it's doing and it should work for me. And it just doesn't. And Ghostlight's another one where it I want to try and like it. Like, I appreciate it, but I just don't enjoy it. So, yeah, a bit, bit, bit of a shame, that. Do you think people can see its flaws, but because it is trying to be so different and it is quirky, and as you already mentioned, the sets look fantastic. I mean, give the BBC a period house to recreate, and they do it very, very well. Um, and, and the quirkiness of that song about going to the zoo, I can't think of what it, what it is right now, or the guy regressing into the, uh, the ape. That, that's the way to the zoo. That's right. You yeah. know... It is so imaginative and and interesting that although it doesn't quite hold together, do you think people maybe give it a pass and say, well, well, it's trying to be something amazing, so therefore it's good? Do you think maybe that's how they look at it? Whereas you're looking at it more literally? I, I think so. And as I say, I do appreciate it for that, but I don't enjoy it. And I'm sure there are others that do actually enjoy it as well as appreciate it. But yeah, I think you're right. There are some that say, well, I appreciate it and respect it, therefore it's good. Whereas to me, it needs to actually resonate on that high level of enjoyment mm. for me to say it's really good. But I do appreciate it. Yeah, I fair, just don't enjoy it. Fair, fair enough. Now, to round out, uh, for me at least, I know you've got another segment to do, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the hell it's called this week, um, we have a review. Uh, this comes from the UK from a listener called Morton Slumber. He uh, titles this one, Struth. And writes thus, Australia's greatest export. Oh, that's a good way to start, Dave. (laughs) 
and the Marvel Movie Universe of Who podcasts with several different weekly shows, Random Fandom, You and Who Talking, orbiting the main monthly event from engaging hosts Rob and Dave. With so many Who podcasts around, it's great to have one that approaches the program from so many different and entertaining angles. Cheers, guys! Well, thank you very much. That was a very lovely review. Yeah, we're Australia's greatest export, Dave. Does that mean we've replaced Carly? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wonderful. And look, it just reminds me, we, we, we hardly ever ask you to write iTunes reviews or Apple Podcast reviews or whatever it's called now. But if you could, that would just be wonderful. It does help us get seen. If you do like what we do and what the other guys who present shows on this uh, feed do, it would be great. And it would be greatly appreciated. It would, it would. Please, please do. Now, Rob, as you are aware, a fellow Australian fan is getting some of his writing in the Doctor Who sphere published. Yes, not for the first time. He has been published in Doctor Who monthly before, as I recall. But in terms of a book... Yes, he is getting a book brought out by the same people that are doing the Lethbridge-Stewart series. And that is Robert Mamoni, who is on the one episode to go now, 42 to Doomsday podcast has been my co-host on the Goodies Pirate podcast and he's a friend of the show. And look, it's not often that an Australian fan gets to actually have their work, you know, made into a Doctor Who book. So I took the chance when Rob was over recording a recent Goodies podcast to do a quick interview with him about what it's like to actually be a Doctor Who fan who's seeing his work in print and for sale. And we will hear that interview now. Rob, welcome to the Doctor Who Show. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. And congratulations on joining a list that includes alumni such as Kate Orman and... That's about it, really. That's about it, really. Which is Australian Doctor Who fans who have had an actual official piece of Doctor Who work published as a novel. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, it's um, a little bit surreal after all this time, but yeah, I um, have a novella coming out soonish uh, through Candy Jar Books in the UK. So, spoiler free, but what's the novel about? So... Um, Candy Jar have secured the rights to uh, the Doctor Who version of H.G. Wells as seen in Time Lash from Glenn McCoy. But they, what they've done is teamed him up with uh, Edward Travers, and Travers features heavily in their Lethbridge-Stewart range. So basically they're inspired by the works of H.G. Wells. Uh, the novella range uh, will feature both of these uh, men effectively lost in time, journeying through uh, stories inspired by H.G. Wells' work. And the first one, which is mine, I had the the... The happy task of uh, taking on one of science fiction's foundational texts, uh, War of the Worlds. So um, it, uh, it, 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 it it it's set in that sort of uh, re- that sort of reality, I suppose, but uh, uh, inspired more than anything else. So did you have to go back and watch Time Lash and draw the character out of there, or is it much about the historical H.G. Wells as it is the fictional one? So I did rewatch uh, Time Lash uh, last year because I was actually I. In setting up this range, they asked me to do a short story which appeared in a book called The Life of Evans, written by John Peel. Uh, and that did feature, um, well, Time Lash, the, the world of Time Lash Carfell 20 years later as a way of getting these two characters together. So, yes, I did watch Time Lash again. But in terms of uh, the H.G. Wells, well, uh, he, he is a couple of years on from Time Lash, but I did draw heavily from his, uh, his life at that point. You know, he'd been teaching and that sort of thing. And. Um, but also the experience of actually being on an alien world. So, yeah. Did you draw much from the Doctor Who world, or are there little nuggets or gemstones to find, or is uh, it very, very independent? It's very independent. Uh, Candy Jar have the rights to use elements from the Abominable Snowmen and the Web of Fear, obviously um, uh, Lethbridge-Stewart, but also the, the characters like Travers, etc., uh, etc. Et 
But in terms of the Doctor Who world, no, it's completely walled off from that. I mean, they can make allusions to it, but they have to be very careful, obviously, because it's you know Doctor Who's a licensed product and they don't obviously have the rights to it. Sure. So you're a very everyday fan, if I can put it in those terms. Yeah. You're not a professional writer, but you are an enthusiastic amateur, fair to say? Yes, that's fair enough. What tips do you have for other enthusiastic amateurs that are looking to get Doctor Who works published? Well... In terms of Doctor Who, I think it's basically impossible. They're, they're looking for established writers. Uh, if you look at the sort of the range of, uh, of books they've written over the last or published over the last five or six years, uh, they're, they're using established science fiction writers. If you're, I suppose, looking for uh, stuff in sort of off-licensed work like what we what I've done, look, I suppose whenever they have an open submission uh, session or open submission. Invite like they have recently in the last few months. Take advantage of that. You know, if they, if they want short stories, uh, you know, put in submit to sort their short your short stories based on their works. I mean, read their books, uh, read their output, and uh, and 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 when the opportunity comes, just just take it basically. And on the scale of joyful labour of love to hard grind, mm. where does churning out a novel like this sit? Well, if I was twenty years younger, I would uh, I'd be probably doing backflips because it was it was a dream of mine when I was much much younger to do it. Now, look, I'm I feel satisfied that I've managed to to, to get this done. It was it's forty five thousand words, and I had about three or four months to do it. So on balance, it was a bit of a grind, but then I work full time, so I had to sort of squeeze time in from you know outside work. But in terms of getting it done, I feel very satisfied with uh, with how it all turned out, and I'm really pleased to have had the opportunity uh, to, from Candy Jar. And totally, what sort of book is it? So, would it appeal to fans of horror or suspense or mystery? Or what? What, what is it? Well, I, it is, I sort of categorise it or characterise it as a sort of a rollicking uh, adventure yarn. There are elements of horror in it. Uh, it is set in uh, in a Britain that has suffered from the uh, the invasion of the Martians. So there is there is there's action. There's a bit of horror. There are some sort of you know adventure thriller aspects, so it sort of crosses a whole lot of genres. But um, I suppose under a big umbrella of just adventure fantasy, really. So would it go well to read this whilst listening to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds? You can if you want. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> it certainly doesn't hurt. I think you can just about read anything and listen to Jeff uh, Jeff Wayne's work. No, it uh, yeah. If you you could you could have that in the background, yes, and it would uh, add to the enjoyment. All right. So I'll put you on the spot. Mm. If the BBC rang you right now and said, Rob, we love your novel. Mm. Pitch us a story, pick the, pick your doctor, pick your companion, and pick your setting. What would be your dream commission? Oh, you put me on the spot, Dave. Thanks very much for that. I would have to go with, and this is entirely predictable, I would have to go with Tom Baker. I would have to go with something gothic, horror-ish, uh, around the time, you know, the, the, the first his first three seasons. I would do something like that. I mean, that's just in my wheelhouse. I'd be able to reel, you know, reel that out pretty quickly, yeah. All right, so for those who want to check out your work, where can they find it? So um, if you are wanting or interested enough, you go to the Candy Jar website um, and uh, just have a tool around there. It's, it's called Travers and Wells, uh, written by myself, Robert Mamoni. Um, and, yeah, you can order it straight for, through them. A limited edition run, so get in as soon as you can. Good. Well, we're very happy here to support one of our fellow Australian fans. Thank you very so much. good luck with the book and whatever is next in your uh, list of things to do. Thank you, Dave. Much appreciated. Wow, there we go, Dave. Uh, Rob Mamoni talking about his uh, his book with you. I found that really interesting and, and great to see another Aussie, another Aussie podcast, no less, you know, doing well. We love bigging up other podcasts and other fans in this, uh, in this great country of ours. It, it is, it is. So uh, well done to Rob and I hope there's a lot more to come. Indeed. 
Dave, I think that brings us to the end of our chat this morning, and we've done it all before the cricket starts. We have, which is absolutely perfect. <laughs> Although I'll be editing, I must say, while the uh, the first overs are being bowled. Uh, well, that's fair, but our play will definitely not be delayed by rain. It is a perfect day for the cricket here in Melbourne. That's great. We've, there's our pitch report, folks. You know, bookies pay a lot of money for that sort of thing, but we've, <laughs> we've got it free from Dave here. So the next thing our listeners are going to hear on our feed is going to be the next episode of the Alternate Galaxies. It is indeed, and in only, gosh, what, a bit over a week from now. Uh, yes, so we're going to be dropping that on the 40th anniversary of the first episode of Blake 7 screening, coincidentally, because it is about Blake 7. <laughs> Which is something I've been re-watching lately, partly because I wanted to get ahead of your episode on it, and also I wanted to get ahead of the... Um, can we mention that secret project, Dave? Well, I was about to say, my friend Rich and I will be, at the start of 2018, launching a new Blake 7 podcast, which is called Spacefall. And we will be going through each episode of Blake 7 and having a chat about it for the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah. There's 52 episodes and we're going fortnightly, so it's a, it's a two-year project. Yeah, no, I am really looking forward to that. Partly because I don't have to edit it and I can just be a listener, but also partly because, as I say, I am watching the episodes at the moment, so I'll be sort of watching them concurrently with what you put out. Uh, yeah, look, I hope that you'll enjoy it. I know a lot of Doctor Who fans are also Blake 7 fans, and I think there's a lot of interest in that series still. And, you know, we, we think there's space for a really good, you know, great journey podcast. Just looking at every episode and why we love it, what works, what doesn't, uh, what, you know, is just a reflection of the 70s and is you know, maybe dated a little bit. But it will be a podcast done, done from love, which I both do love the series. We're having some guests on as we go through it. And, yeah, we hope to launch around about February. And you'll see some of the social media about that shortly. Yeah, no, that's very, very exciting stuff. Really, really looking forward to that one, Dave. Now, speaking of Richard, yes, I've just got an email from him. <laughs> he always does this. <laughs> he, he knows when we're recording and he must time his emails to arrive just as we're about to wrap up. But he sent us his thoughts on Twice Upon a Time. Hit us, Dave. Well, that was an interesting hour of television. Is interesting in... Uh quotation marks no but uh we'll see if he if it could be maybe i'm still too full of christmas cheer to appreciate all its nuances assuming that's what they were but i have to say i didn't really get a lot out of that the inherent problem is i think that christmas specials are poor vehicles for regeneration stories by their nature the festive episodes have to be light for the christmas audience so this was sadly never going to be a big heavy and dramatic finale so, what we're left with is essentially a character piece, which just felt low-key and unnecessary by Stephen Moffat's own admission. This was more of a coda than a final adventure. I guess Peter Capaldi really got his big last hurrah at the end of last season, but that maybe makes it even more disappointing that he didn't regenerate then. Mm, something we covered earlier. Exactly. Anyway, still not sold on David Bradley as the first Doctor, and I found the jokes about his old-fashioned ideas were getting stale at the end. Some of the banter with Capaldi was amusing, and I did like the moment where the first Doctor works out that the alien face must be a real person by observation as opposed to using gadgets. That, that was a good moment we didn't mention, we should have mentioned. That's right, that. the asymmetrical face, yeah. Yeah. But it felt more like the dialogue trying to be clever at times. The idea that Mark Gaddis was the Brigadier's grandfather was a fairly obvious progression. I thought Gaddis gave quite a good performance in this one, although you'd imagine his character's death was probably only delayed for a few hours. 
so we didn't have to see it on screen and bring the whole mood down. Well, you've just brought the mood down there, Richard. But yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. Yeah, that's World War One for you. Yeah. Nice to see Bill back. And it's a shame that that's it for Pearl Mackey. But did we really need Clara? No. No, no we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the opening with the acknowledgement that we were watching a TV show was an unusual touch as well. Finally, the regeneration. I know Peter Capaldi's final speech was meant to be powerful and the summation of both the era and the Doctor's ethos, but I was really wishing that he'd just get on with it by the end, which kind of undermined the whole thing. Hard to judge Jodie Whittaker by 30 seconds of screen time, although the final shot perhaps means the rumours about next season being about finding the TARDIS, didn't J&T want to do that in the 80s, are true. Well, I think somebody else has reached that conclusion there, Rob. Mm, yeah. Thanks, guys, for a great year of podcasts. Hope you both had a Merry Christmas and best wishes for 2018. Keep punching Richard Nolan. Thank you, Richard. I think you've said a lot of what we've said, but good to hear and always reassuring to hear that we're not alone on some of these hot takes, Rob. Mm, Absolutely. But do you know what? I've just been given an idea. Do you think if this is a search for the TARDIS in this upcoming series, here I am, I'm going to draw a really long bow here, Dave. And our introductory scene to Jodie was the TARDIS key uh, burning in her hand and she walks into a clearing and there is the TARDIS. Do you think that might be reshot and brought into the series? Obviously, the costume has to be different. Obviously, the look of the TARDIS has to be different because she is going to have a different look TARDIS. But do you think they might sort of recreate that scene and uh, the key leads her to her TARDIS at the end of the series or at the end of an episode or something like that if she is looking for it? I know. <laughs> it's a wonderful idea but no i don't think that's going to happen too too fan wanky too meta a little bit but you know hey maybe you'll have the last laugh in a year's time Ah, oh, look i'm just still disappointed the tardis roof didn't peel back and reveal stars <sighs> it would have been nice what could have been dave yes so we'll have our january episode in a month's time we will indeed uh, where we're going to be looking back at the Moffat era and the Russell T Davies era and seeing how they compare. Yeah, this is something I've wanted to do for a long time, and particularly once the series ten wrapped up. But then I thought, no, no, there's still one more story to go. We've got to hold off. We've got to hold off. We will. So we'll try to take our moderate, sensible centre approach to the whole of the Moffat era versus the whole of the Russell T Davies era. And after that, we've got some really good stuff coming for 2018 that we just won't mention yet. No, but uh, it is uh, plans are in train and uh, strong and stable podcasting will continue with the Doctor Who show in 2018. That's right. Whatever else is happening in the world and in the world of podcasting, you can rely on us. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Dave. Merry Christmas to you and to all our listeners at home. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. 
This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who or names and sounds and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. Thank you.